All right, week two in our series behind the text. Scripture, right? Holy Scripture. And I'll just say very, very quickly, I'm not going to go into this whole much, but there's a little bit of difference between the Bible and Holy Scripture. I, I know it sounds kind of funny, but theologians, like the Bible is the physical book, a lot of you know, 66 books all kind of stacked in there. But it becomes Holy Scripture when it forms us when it forms the church and it gives us purpose and direction and value and significance and it transforms us individually and then as the church, right? That's where, that's where, that's where the power, the power, that's when the Bible becomes holy scripture. So I'm going to be using those two terms somewhat interchangeably, but, but keep in the back of your mind, um, when we say the Bible, it's kind of the physical book, but when we say holy scriptures, it's those scriptures that are forming us and transforming us. That's when they become holy scripture, um, so, so Holy Scripture has been incredibly important throughout history and for a really, really, really good reason, right? This is God telling us his plan for us, like for you and me. Um, so Christians turn to the Bible, you know, to help in understanding something about God and the world um, in which they live, but it's not just information for information's sake, right? This is just kind of a little bit, a real quick review from last week, kind of bring you up to speed. Um, the information contained in the Bible, it has a purpose. It has a divine and eternal purpose. Paul writes this in his letter to the Christians um, in Rome, and this is what, what we read just a little bit earlier, uh, chapter 15, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past, and again, he's speaking in the New Testament era, so he's really talking about the Old Testament, but the principle applies to the New Testament as well. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. And again, hope has a name. It's not a law. It's not a ritual. It's not an incantation or a perfect scriptural recital. Uh, again, listen to Paul's words in a letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. And if you recall, last week I had the word Roman up there, but now I have corrected it. My bad. Some of you noticed, but you didn't tell me. Interesting. Hmm. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Right? This is the message of hope. That you will never, ever be ashamed of taking. You will never, ever regret this decision. This is what basically Paul is saying. And then in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. You put your money on the wrong pony. I threw that silly phrase out last week. If you've decided to put all your marbles into any other bag other than the one marked Jesus Christ, Son of God, you're eventually going to lose all your marbles, right? In a lot of different ways, right? You're going to, your sanity will come last, but your reason will quickly go by the wayside and, and your, your whole life will just kind of get jacked up just, just a little bit. Right? If you put your marbles into any other bag besides the one marked Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor Jerry, what kind of other bags are we talking about? Well, let me tell you. We do have other authorities, bags, marble bags. Uh, we have the church, right? Do the rituals and the sacraments and agree with the affirmations and the church saves you. This is an idea. This is a, a theological idea. If you do the rituals, sacraments, agree with the affirmation, then the church saves you. But make sure it's the right church because if you're in the wrong church, you're not saved. Right? This is the idea of the church being an authority, maybe too much of an authority. We also have tradition. And this isn't like this is the way we've always done it. That's really not the idea, although that is kind of hidden in this idea. When we speak about tradition and theology, we're talking about the early church fathers and, and really the church councils. There were seven, eight, well, there were seven main ones, but there were a few others um, 
Uh, the first one in Nicaea, about seven or 325 AD. There were three in Constantinople, one in Chalcedon, one in Ephesus, and a last one in Nicaea, about 450 years later in 787. And basically, the national Orthodox churches, this is what they lean into. That first one, um, church, this is, and I don't want to overstate this, but that, that, that's maybe a picture of the Roman Catholic Church. And again, I don't want to insult anybody, but that, that's kind of a foundation of theirs, that they, they present the sacraments and, and through the church and then through all the, that's how you're saved. Um, but then with this tradition thing, the, this is the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Russian Orthodox church, the Ukrainian Orthodox church, the Greek, I don't know, I'm not terribly sure how many of them are, um, but, but they, this is where they kind of line up. They, their authority lies in these seven church councils, right? They're ecumenical uh, churches, that, that's their thing. Um, Fiddler on the roof, what does he sing? Tradition, tradition, tradition. He's not talking about the way the things always were. He's talking about the church fathers and the church councils. And being in Russia, this would have affected him in a big, big way. We also have experience, right? The personal encounter with God. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The idea is that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can override the church. It can override tradition. It can override experience. And it can override reason. Whatever you feel, that's the most important authority. And again, we have a lot of these kind of churches. I, I, I'm not... Saying that they're wrong, I'm saying they are leaning heavily into this, right or wrong. Uh, Pentecostal charismatic churches really, really lean into the experience of the Holy Spirit. I was reading a couple weeks ago, um, these churches tend to focus on the gifts of the Spirit, where we in the Wesleyan Armenian tradition, we tend to focus on the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We're not denying the gifts of the Spirit. We just, that's not our foundation. Our foundation is a life well lived, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sanctified entirely. That's what we're about. Kind of let you know. Uh, so we also have uh, reason, right? Don't really need any of the above. Just use your brain. You'll figure it out. And this has come under different labels, right? Back in the late Middle Ages, this idea of scholasticism, where we can arrive at God, but we really don't need this. Right? God has explained himself so well in our minds and in creation that this is just additional information. Um, they came up really with a lot of the omnis, omnipotent, immutable, impassable, all, all these highest level of everything when the fact of the matter is the Bible never claims any of those things for our Heavenly Father. He never claims any of those things. So we got this idea that, hey, we'll just figure it out outside of Holy Scripture and today it's called postmodernity, right? There's no standard. Whatever is right for you, hey, that's right for you. And if it doesn't work for me, well, it doesn't work for me. It's a very, very uh, a moving, unstable ground of, of what truth is, um, pure reason. Now, again, these are not bad authorities, right? These are not bad authorities. In fact, John Wesley leaned heavily into all of these. But he always put one authority above all the rest. All the rest were read through that one authority of Holy Scripture, right? That, that, was, the, that was the top. He, he leaned into tradition, and we're going to learn about this a couple weeks from now, and tradition, and the church, and experience, and re all these things were very important to John Wesley. They're very important to us. You, you recognize them, right? You feel them. They're just real. But they have to be under Holy Scripture. They have to be seen and interpreted and understood through Holy Scripture. So why? Why, have, why do they have to be grounded in Scripture? Paul continues in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this is crucial for today's message. 
right? There's this thing of first importance, but then there's a lot of other things that are fairly important, but they're not of first importance. They all must submit to the one thing of first importance. And by the way, that's not a literal reading of the Genesis creation account. I'll just kind of throw that in there. This will be a battleground in this series. I'll just tell you straight up, kind of get ready for it. It's okay, whichever you believe. I'll just kind of give you a sneak peek. I was told as a kid, if you didn't believe the literal reading of the Genesis creation account, the rest of Scripture would crumble away, slippery slope. How many heard that? Anybody? Right? You don't believe that? Well, you just might as well toss the whole book. I would suggest a better line in the sand, a life-giving line in the sand uh, might be the resurrection account, not the creation account. I'll just throw that out for you. Um, Make the resurrection account your your foundation. Right? Right? That's, that's, That's the line in the sand. Um, let me continue. Verses 3 through 5 says that this is of first importance. This is what's of first importance. He doesn't mention anything else. This is important, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. This is what's of first importance. This is what our faith rests on, right? This is the, count, this is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. This is rock and not sand, Right? In other words, as we learned last week, we turn to the Scriptures because that's where we find the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ, the living word, is found in the Bible, which is the written word. And in case you're wondering, as you look up there, hit that next slide there. We're, there we go. Um, that sounds like a, some of you might have, like, you, you, you've been in, in logic class. You're like, hey, hey, Pastor Jerry, that's like circular logic. Right? Circular logic is this idea that you go ahead and start with where you want to arrive at. Right? We want to arrive at Jesus Christ is found in Holy Scripture, and someone's got to go, whoa, 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 there's a problem with this. Right? You're just kind of one is proven the other, and A is B, and then B is A, and, and <sighs> luckily, luckily, <laughs> um, The fallacy isn't, it doesn't, doesn't work well because logical reasoning, circular reasoning works if all of your premises, and this one we have two premises, right, that Christ is found in the Scripture and Scripture tells us that we find Christ. Um, if they're both true or if you have more components to this circular, if they're all true, then circular reasoning works. It just works. And thankfully, thankfully, uh, in addition to the mounting external evidence pointing to the truth of Scripture and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we also have an outside witness, right? An incredible, an advocate, Christ called him, who testifies to the truth of both Jesus and the Scripture. So that makes this logical circular reasoning and not illogical circular reasoning. This says, this is in John chapter 16, verses 2, 12 through 13. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Jesus is about to leave. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He will testify to your spirit that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the written word is the place that you can find him. The written word can be relied on. It's credible. So again, last week we learned that in the written word, we find the living word. Jesus is the person we discover in Scripture, right? We go to Scripture to find Jesus, but this week we're going to discover an authority and a a power behind that written word and actually behind the living word also. 
We're going to discover that the only, we only recognize the living word in the written word by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that one more time. I kind of stumbled through it. We will discover that the, we only recognize the living word in the written word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, again, it makes perfect sense when Christians base their entire lives around one book above all other books. And it makes even more sense when you consider the fact that this was actually one of the five rallying points of the Protestant Reformation, right? Started with Martin Luther and, and went down through a whole bunch of others. Um, because I, I know we don't re recognize this, but there was a time when Scripture didn't hold a top place, right? Um, and this is what, this is what the, the, the Reformation and, and the, the Protestants, the people protesting, this is what they had issues with. And this is kind of where they arrived. Scripture only. It wasn't that way before. We'd gotten so much into church and tradition that we were stepping away maybe from actual Holy Scripture. And the Reformation came back and said, whoa, 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 whoa. The Bible alone is our highest. There's other authorities, but the Bible alone is our highest authority. Not church, not tradition, not councils, not experience, not reason. By faith alone, this was a, a second statement of the, the Reformation, right? We're saved by faith alone through Jesus Christ, not by good works, by grace alone, right? We're saved by the grace of God alone, not by keeping the law, because we found out we simply can't do that. Through Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Not crown, not pope, not country, not flag, not church. Jesus Christ is our Lord, Savior, and King. We got to keep that gotta, gotta, main thing, main thing, main thing. And then glory to God alone. Not our own or other causes. I mean, there's a lot of other great causes I mean, there really are, that fall into line with God's mission of redeeming the entire earth, all of creation, right? There's a lot of causes, but we've, the other causes will fall apart, lose power, lose steam, go nowhere unless they have the power of the Holy Spirit behind them, unless we're giving God the glory and not that cause that can't supplant God. Here's the second related thing we looked at last week. It's kind of segueing us into today's message. Yeah, we're eventually going to get there, I promise you. The credibility of Scripture is dependent on both the authority of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. Credibility meaning the reliability, right? What is it about this book that, like Harry Truman said, like the buck stops here, right? He was the president of the United States. He, had the, he was the high. There were plenty of other authorities, but if that issue came to his desk, there was no one that he could appeal to. Right? As the, as the United States, the buck stopped at his. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, the buck stops at Scripture for us. Why? Well, it's because it's from God himself, purportedly. I mean, that's what they say. And that's what we believe. And if we believe that one, then we give it authority. But if we don't believe it was inspired, inspired by God, then we don't give it authority. So these two ideas, man, they, they, like, they got this dance going on. Right? The more authority you give Scripture, it's because you believe that it was inspired by God. And the less that you believe that it was inspired by God, the less authority that you're going to give it. They just, they've got to stay together. They've got to play well together. But here's the problem. Between God inspiring it and us deciding whether or not to give it authority, this keeps happening. Right? Us. <laughs> We're characters. We looked at this next week. We're all over the map. We don't have divine knowledge. We're a victim of the fall. I mean, we, we just got all sorts of issues going on. Not only all that, but 
Y'all are different ages, you come from different backgrounds, you've had different experiences. All this leads to the fact, the very, very, the fact that we all interpret. More importantly, we all interpret differently based on our background. We all read into Scripture, either intentionally or unintentionally. And then we unintentionally walk away with half-truths or kind of heading in the wrong direction. And then there's something that we didn't discuss last week. We're going to kind of dig in today. Not only do we all interpret differently, and and, and we're going to look at next week, to a certain extent, (laughs) be careful here, that's okay if we interpret differently. Got to come back next week. Okay, settle down, Jerry. Um, Not only do we interpret differently, but tightly related to that, we all arrive at Jesus by different routes. I don't know if you're aware of that. You ever talk to somebody, and the, mo- the funnest story that you ask in a small group is, how did you find Jesus? Right? And if you've ever done that in a small group, it's amazing. It's like, wow, really? You, what happened? They said, what? I mean, it's just like this whole story, and you're like, wow, I didn't find Jesus that way. <laughs> kind of weird. I, I, I'm continually amazed at what people believe about God in the Bible. And, and again, doing small groups for so long, you ask a question, you get an answer, and you're you try really hard not to let your, drop, your jaw drop, right, or your eyes get really big. You're like, wow, where'd you get that idea? Oh, my brother told me, you know, I read it on the Internet. And Let's take a look at that because that's crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, I, and I think, I, you know, and I look at them, and, and, I, and I look at what they believe, and then I see that they, they love Jesus, right? And, then they, and, and they love their neighbor as themselves, right? And they got bucket loads of fruit of the Spirit, and I think, how? did this happen with that interpretation how did they arrive where i arrived at there's something going on there's got to be something going on behind the written word for this this kind of thing to happen i mean what gives right here just a couple couple things i mean i've just been reading this last couple weeks the blind man born blind you know the pharisees are asking in the crowd is was it him or his parents and they had this idea and, and you don't see it in scripture again this was the rabbi's interpretation is he sinned in the womb. <laughs> Somehow they decided that, that Barnabas, not Barnabas, um, uh, the blind man, he sinned in the womb. I go, how do you sin in the womb? It's like, what? And I, and I, and I hear these other things like, um, like dinosaur bones. I was just reading the other day. There is a, a, a wide sector of Christianity that believes that dinosaur bones and all of the sciences and all their evidence has been strategically placed there by God to test our faithfulness to his word. It's all, it's all an illusion. Like literally God put dinosaur bones to make us step away, to see if we would step away from that. I, I'm not, I don't buy that. I, I'm sorry. You, it's okay if you can. That's the whole point of my message. If you've still found Jesus Christ and if you still have bucket loads of the fruit of the Spirit and you still love your neighbor, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with your crazy wrong interpretation. <laughs> okay, let's continue. Um, and, the, and the last one, I, I, I was just floored. This is, this is a, this is not the Reformed Church, but this is a, a, an extreme expression of the Reformed Church that John Calvin started. Um, this idea that God predestined us all to either be blessed, eternal life, or to be damned, eternal damnation. And there is this church, I don't know what the name of it is, but they believe that God created the earth and all of us simply to carry out blessing some of you and sending some of you to hell. 
Now, look, if you still find Jesus and you still got bucket loads of the fruit of the Spirit and you still love your neighbors yourself, I'm okay with your crazy interpretation, right? I, I, I think. <laughs> I'm not going to teach that. Um, I'm going to teach the correct interpretation. Um, but you can hold on to your interpretations and it's okay. It's okay. And, and we're going to arrive at why, why it's okay. Again, I, I know how on God's green earth did they find Jesus through all that, right? <laughs> Here's Paul's explanation. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power and the information contained therein is from God and not from us. See, Paul had been going on and on about how awesome the Christian life was to the church at Corinth, how privileged we are to have the good news. And so just how easily it is to get egotistical and proud and authoritative and legalistic. Our interpretation is the only one. And if you have any other interpretation, you're going to go to hell. God doesn't like you. Use your brain. Come on. It's kind of like we're saved and you're not. God loves us, but he doesn't love you. We have the truth and you don't. We walk in light and you walk in darkness, you silly fools. We have all the answers and you don't. Similar comments 2,000 years later. When what we believe or our faith or how we interpret what we believe and how we live, right, our, our practice when our faith and our practice disagrees with somebody else's faith, what they believe, and somebody else's practice, how they carry out that belief, they're just simply questioning. They're basically saying, look, you've got to arrive at Christ the same way I arrived at Christ. And they'll ask questions like this, just like they were asking back in, in Corinth, saying incredibly silly things. It continues to say, aren't you a Bible-believing church? When your interpretation is different than somebody else's, I, I, I've been told that many times. Don't you believe in the Bible's authority, Pastor Jerry? Don't you believe in what the Bible says? <laughs> what, am I, what am I supposed to say? No. <laughs> I'll get fired then. Don't you believe that the Bible is God's word? And they're like adamant. Like they figured out and you haven't. And unless you line up with their interpretation, <laughs> too bad for you. What they're really saying is that you have to arrive at Jesus by the same route they took. And that's perfectly understandable. I totally get that, right? When I found a, a route or when I find a route or a way to something amazing, if you know me very well, I let everybody know about it, right? If there's one trait that I got from my dad, it's that you know what I'm excited about. I can't stop talking about it. I drive my wife nuts. I, drive my, I just drive everybody nuts because I'm like, just like, wah. I did just, just. The way I am. And, and I get it when people, they discover Christ and they're just like, whoa, and they want to tell everybody about it. But no, 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 no. You got to, no, 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 no. Don't be confused. No, it's got to be exactly. And, and, they, and, they, uh, and, they, and they, they put you into the, the, the box that they found Christ in. But here's the deal. Way more often than not, these folks confuse a route with the way. A route with the way. John chapter 14, verse 4 and five, it says, you know the place where I'm going. Jesus had just told the disciples yet again, right, that he was going to be crucified. He was going to be killed by the authorities. They were going to take his life, but not to worry, not to worry, because he was going to, wherever he was going, he was going to go and prepare a place, and he's going to come back and get them, right? They don't need to worry. So he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replies, 
I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him because you know me and you've seen me, Jesus speaking, not Pastor Jerry. Right? The disciples wanted a map for the journey, like a, a list of instructions. Tell me exactly what to believe so that I can know exactly how to live so that I can experience eternal life. Like, just, come on, come on, just, just give me the list, give me the list. But he doesn't give them a list. He gives them no, no beliefs, no practices, no creeds, no rituals. They want a map, but Jesus gives them the map maker. Right? And as we dig into this series, you're going to have to decide by which route or way that we're saved, right? Do we trust in being on the right side of any other biblical, any biblical issue other than the resurrection? Or do we believe that we're saved by Jesus Christ and his resurrection? Right? It's one or the two. So here's the question we got to ask ourselves as we dig into this series. And you all need to kind of word it to yourselves, right? If you receive indisputable evidence that you were wrong on any issue other than the resurrection, because as you recall, Paul says, and I, I believe this with all my heart, if it weren't for the resurrection, everything is lost because that makes Jesus out to be either crazy or a liar. I don't think I want to follow a crazy person or a liar, or it's the truth. And his resurrection proves of what he said was truth. If you run into any evidence that proves that you're wrong on any issue other than the resurrection, would that destroy your faith? Kind of ask yourself that because we're going to, I'm, I'm going to ask some questions in this series. They're not my questions. These are, these are the Nazarene, Wesleyan, Armenian theologians are asking these questions and they're moving our faith forward. It's, we don't have a dead faith, folks. We have a living faith because we have the Holy Spirit. That's the authority behind our written word. The Spirit is doing something new all the time. God never stopped creating. He never stops forming us, and he never stops transforming us. That never ends. He exists. We're always becoming. I love the statements you have down the hall. They're so true. We're becoming. To ever think that we arrived, we're confusing entire sanctification with final sanctification, right? Glorification. Don't, don't be confused, right? We're going to find out at some point everything that we need to know, but at this point... We're on this side of knowing it as much as we are supposed to know. On the other hand, on the other hand, if your faith is anchored in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you can listen attentively to this series, you can consider open-mindedly, and you can participate graciously. Now, again, before we discover how in the world people find Jesus through such different routes and interpretations of the Bible, we need to address one more critical barrier to fully understanding everything that Scripture has to say, right? One more barrier that stops us from saying, I've figured it out. And thus becoming arrogant and, and not gracious. In two words, it's the fall. We have messed up reason. Sin has skewed our reason. Genesis 3 tells us that sin makes us think wrongly about ourselves, about God, and about our neighbors. And if this is true, there's a corollary truth. We've got messed up scholarship too. Both biblical and scientific knowledge are subject to the effects of the fall. Now, I'm not saying that God is keeping stuff back and making us guess. Everything that we need to know, he has told us. 
And I love that statement in our, our Holy Scripture, number four article of faith. Right, that we, we believe everything in Scripture that has to do with our salvation. Absolutely true. Both biblical and scientific histories are littered with misunderstanding, twisted facts, corrupted data, false premises, inaccurate details. Right, and we know this. It's okay to admit it. Both science and God's people have gotten things way wrong before. Right? You've read your history books. What people do in the name of God is, it, it just makes you cry. It, it just, it breaks you that they say, we're doing this in the name of God. No, you're not. <laughs> you're doing that in the name of hate. Even with these very, very issues that divide believers and unbelievers today, we may not have all the information. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Right? We need to celebrate all the advances that science and biblical scholars are making, but, but we need to hold on to that truth. It's, it's vulnerable, right? It, it, truth doesn't change it, but what we understand about the full truth, it doesn't change, it grows. I'm trying to say this very, very carefully, right? We, we, we've got to avoid the arrogance of today. We're going to talk about that idea in a minute. We may not have all the information. We may be misreading the information. We may be biased. We may be too emotionally attached. All of these things, and we may arrive, and we may have arrived at wrong conclusions. And it's okay to question these things and to not accept them, stick them in a suitcase, and slide it under a bed and never deal with it again. And T. Wright says that's what, kind of what we do with our theological beliefs. We stick it all in a suitcase, and then we keep it locked. Right? But the whole idea of a suitcase is you take it to another place, you open it up, and does it still work in this place? Can I wear this shirt here? Because I can wear it at home. So you open up your suitcase, and you, you, you open up in new locations. Right? You don't go to your new location and slide it under the bed and never open it up, and that yet, that's what we do as Christians. Right? We stick all these ideas in our little black box, our suitcase, and we slide it under the bed, and don't be messing with my suitcase. Right? Let's open it up, and maybe some of these ideas have gotten a little musty, need a little bit of air, Right? Such a situation might cause for despair if not for the author of all truth. If we ever come to the truth, it will only be because of the spirit of truth enabled us to receive it. We are entirely at God's mercy on this one, folks. We have no other place to go. I've been talking about this with the teens. We have very limited information. We have very limited perceptions. We don't know everything that God knows, and he's the only source of information. So if he decides not to give us a certain amount of information, we don't get it. We don't get it. He, all the information we have, we have received graciously by his grace, not by our study, not by our, uh, but by the power of his spirit. He graciously gave us understanding. And so a key issue to wrestle with us as we search for truth is this idea of the arrogance of today. And I'm not talking about today, like today, 2020, like we're all arrogant now. We weren't arrogant before. But this idea that every day between today and the garden, think about Adam and Eve, they were arrogant. God doesn't have all the answers. I think he's holding back. We can discover the answers. Arrogance. Incredible Arrogance. We've got to keep in mind that every generation before us thought that they had it all figured out too. As I'm studying the history of theology, I'm just thinking, man, I'm glad we didn't stop there. Like my pastor once told me uh, when I was taking a course from him, uh, 
theory of interpretation, hermeneutics. Um, and he made this comment that it's, it's tragically, it's tragic that the, the science or art of interpretation has died. Right? His statement was kind of that we, we in the modern age, because we think we've got it all figured out, we think we've got it all figured out. We don't need to discover anything more. God has nothing more to say. The Spirit is done doing new things, right? It's now a dead religion. Just hang on to it. <laughs> the arrogance, the arrogance of today. Yet more often than not, the following generation inevitably proved them wrong in both science and faith. This fact alone should keep us from ever saying these silly things, I know enough, I don't need to know anymore. There's nothing more that anyone can teach me I've got it all figured out. I promise you, every time I book a, a textbook or some book I'm about to read, I, I, this, this question goes through my mind. Hey, I promise you, every time, I bet you I know everything there is in this book. Why am I going to bother? I know it's arrogant. I know. And then I open it up, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> amazing new discovery. And it never tears down my faith. It always builds up my faith. So if you're that same kind of person, every time you think of a sermon or another church service, or you're just like, ah, you ain't going to tell me anything new, stop. Just stop. By the power of God's spirit, I just might say something that's going to change, transform you. I don't know. I have no idea. That's up to the spirit. I, I, just, I just do what I got to do. You have to arrive at Jesus by the same route I took. So how do we arrive at truth in spite of sin, faulty interpretations, crazy array of context, misunderstandings, twisted facts, false premises, inaccurate details, biases, emotional attachments, and just flat-out wrong conclusions? How do people find Jesus despite all that? <laughs> I'd like to suggest a better, uh, an explanation for this. And I think it's not only an explanation explaining what's going on, but I think if we embrace this, it's our best way forward. This is the way that we're going to address the issues that divide believers from non-believers in this current post-modernity age. The best way, the best explanation and the best way forward is going to come by expanding our current, I'm going to say this very, very carefully, our current, but it's not historical, it's just very, very current, and thus a very, very narrow interpretation or definition of what it means to be inspired. What does it mean that the Bible is inspired by God? We've got to kind of broaden that back out just a little bit. Some of the silliest, most contentious, life-sucking arguments. You notice I used the word life. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the life some of the silliest, most contentious, life-sucking arguments happen when we limit the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to only the composition of the original texts. I just kind of want to let that sink in for a moment. So we have the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers, but I want to suggest to you this morning that the Holy Spirit is also absolutely crucial and key and hasn't stopped his inspirational work as we, the church, gathered, as we read and, and it forms us and it transforms us as individuals. When we do this, the Bible says, you know, right here, this verse, and this is what this means, and, and you're wrong because it's right here. All we're doing is we're misplacing the Bible's ultimate and only authority in notions and ideas about 
about the Bible, about the physical book, rather than the Holy Spirit's current and ongoing work in the actual function of the Bible in the church. Remember, Paul said it like this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement we find they provide, we might have hope. And again, different words, different letters, same principles. Second Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. John Wesley in his notes on the New Testament he wrote this on the crucial ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in reading and applying Scripture. For him, 1,800 years after the fact, we're about 2,100 years after the fact. The authority of the Bible, he says this, the Spirit of God not only once inspired those who wrote it, but continually inspires, supernaturally assists those that read it with earnest prayer. In another contest, he reiterates that readers need the same Spirit to understand the Scriptures, which enabled the holy men of old to write it. So just as the ancient Jewish people, they chose their books of their Bible, wasn't based on historical or scientific information. It was based on the fact that those books spoke to them, right? They heard God speak to them through those particular scriptures. And if they didn't hear God speak to them through a particular scripture, that scripture was not included in their holy scripture. And it's the same thing with Christianity, the exact same idea. We choose the books we did because they were authoritative scripture. Right? The church heard God speak through certain books and letters. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that inspired the original writing is radically, in radically different cultures and times and situations has to be the same spirit who continues to inspire, inform, and transform us today in our radically different culture, circumstance, and time until we produce the fruit of speech. It's not a both and. It's a both and. It's not an either or. Right? The authority of the Bible is most complete when we consider not only God's inspirational activity in the composition of the text, but also God's inspirational activity in the church's ongoing reading and engagement of the biblical texts. Long before the decisions of whatever church council it was, it was the Council of Carthage, they decided which books would be holy scriptures. The fact of the matter was there was really no argument there. People will try to talk about that. All they argued about it was a close vote. That's a lie. That's not true at all. They, all, they, they, they just kind of checked, they, 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 they rubber stamped it because the books that had become authoritative were authoritative because they were forming and shaping the community. That's why they were accepted. That's why they were put in the canon. They were already functioning in authoritative ways within the church because of their formative and transformative qualities and roles. Again, formative meaning that the scripture that is powerful and that we read and that we keep going back to is because it forms us, right? It calls us out. It gives us purpose and direction as the body, as the local body, as the church universal. But it also transforms us as individuals and then as the church gathered. We're formed and transformed by Scripture. And if Scripture doesn't form and transform us, we don't count it as Holy Scripture. We stop reading, and I promise you, over time, it will be jettisoned. It's happened before. Unless we hear the Spirit speaking through the written Word, it becomes 
dead. The selected books were selected because they continued to form and transform individuals into sanctified believers. The authority of the Bible will always be best evidenced, right, when adherents love Jesus, love their neighbors as themselves, and display bucket loads of fruit of the Spirit. Right? The books didn't give life, the books that didn't give life to the church gathered weren't included, right? Because they didn't give life. What did Jesus say? I'm the way and the truth and the life. They didn't give life. They didn't give, we couldn't find Jesus. Don't need that one. Which begs the final question for today. How do words on a page give life? And I call it the devotional paradox. It's always kind of floored me. I've slowly understood it, but it still kind of floors me. People read in their devotional life, they'll, they'll pick a, they won't even, no context, pick a verse, and they'll come up. And, and I know, they'll, oh, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Jerry, I read about where, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, where did you read that? And then they'll go on, and I found Jesus, right? And, and now I love my neighbor better, and, I, and, and now I'm displaying fruits of the Spirit. I'm thinking, shut up, Jerry. Just, just shut up. Just shut up. <clears throat> the devotional paradox. The only reason that our holy scriptures haven't become locked in culture and location and time, which most of the world religions have, they never migrated from their place of birth because they were locked culturally, situationally, and in time. The only reason that Christianity is flourishing is because we have a living document. So many other world religions are locked geographically, culturally, and locked in time. They're dead documents because they don't have the living spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, continuing to interpret in fresh and new times, requiring God to do new things constantly. He never stops creating and sanctifying, forming and transforming. I want to close with just one picture. This is what's at stake, and this is what's at stake for me. Unless we figure this out, the sometimes ugly message of Christians is going to drive my girls and my daughter away from God. We have to figure out a way to, to allow the Spirit to continue to do new things. We can't be locked in time. We can't be locked in the past. The ultimate authority is not the written word. It's the Spirit that makes the written word come alive. And I know you all have people in your life that's what's at stake. We've got to do a better job in presenting the love of Jesus Christ. If we can get love right, everything else, it doesn't matter. Bow your heads, Father. This is, this is difficult because we, we know that there is an absolute standard of truth, but we also know that truth applied without mercy, without grace, is, it, it's not truth. It, it's ugly. Father, help us get out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. There's, there's too much hanging in the balance. Thank you, Father. Sounds like my prayer. Amen.